Well, good morning. Welcome to the bridge service here at First Free Methodist Church. If you're joining us for the first time this morning or been with us, you know that we uh, are in the book of Revelation. And today we're going to be looking at chapters 13 and 14. If you have a Bible and want to pull it out, it'd be a great time to pull it out. Uh, we just heard chapter 14 read, and I'm going to share a little bit out of chapter 13 to start us in a bit. I was thinking about this mark of the beast that was mentioned there, this mark. And we've heard about the mark of the beast maybe around uh, Revelation and other things we may have seen in the media. And this mark actually goes either on the hand or the forehead, which reminded me of a visit that I was able to take to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem many years ago. And uh, if you ever get a chance to go there, I'd encourage you to go there. The Wailing Wall is the place where uh, is the closest that uh, the Jewish uh, people who worship in the Jewish faith can get to the Solomon's Temple that was destroyed, interesting by, inter- interestingly enough, by, um, by the Rome in 70 AD. So there, the temple's not there anymore, but the wall uh, of the temple is still there that supported the temple. And so you could go there, and many devout pilgrims from all over the world go there and pray there. And uh, I want you to point out something in this picture of this gentleman here at the Wailing Wall this morning. Notice that there's something on his hand that's on the wall, and notice on his forehead there's a box on his forehead. So these are two things that would have been uh, a part of his prayer life, and this is also a part of the Jewish faith, is these boxes have in them scripture. And in each of those boxes is the scripture out of Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read it to you. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And so, uh, this is was this gentleman here that we saw at the well. That's what he's doing. He's taken that scripture, he's put it in that box on his hand and on his forehead, and these are ways to memorize this verse, and not only to memorize it, but to get it into your heart. And so that's what's also known in the Hebrew scriptures as the Shema. This love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, strength, mind, which is what Jesus also quoted in the Gospels. And this idea, this was a central verse to the Hebrew faith, and it also is to the Christian faith as well. So the point of this, the reason we're going to unpack this is because when we get to the mark of the beast, this becomes very important for us to understand. I want to also just let, remind everybody where we're at in this study of Revelation this week. As you know, we uh, last week heard about the dragon, um, but we've gone through the three scenes. We're going through three scenes of signs and the three scenes of seven There are seven seals, seven angels with trumpets, and seven angels with bowls. We've gone through the seven seals in Revelation. We've gone through the seven trumpets. But now, chapter 13 and 14 are between the trumpets and the bowls. We're going to get to the bowls later. But this week, there's this sign that's happening, this vision that John has in chapters 13 and 14 of the dragon and the beast. Dragon was chapter 12, 13, two beasts emerge uh, from the dragon. And then chapter 14 is also tied in with that sign and vision. Now, a lot of people uh, try and interpret Revelation and put a timeline on it. Remember, these signs and symbols are 
representative of things going on in the first century and going on in the future and could, could have gone on in the past. So the Old Testament prophets are used, the, the Hebrew scriptures are used, as well as uh, this is some of the things that happening for John's day in the churches of the first century. So keep this in mind. But if you want a timeline for Revelation, because a lot of people try and put timelines and dates together to interpret Revelation in the end times, here's the basic timeline that I think, that we think that God is working with. Here it is. And it's this. Salvation, repentance, judgment. That's the timeline. Jesus' first coming was salvation, to bring salvation to the world. Then after that, there's a time of repentance, of coming to repentance and coming to relationship with God. And then there's ultimately judgment, final judgment at the day when Jesus returns. That's what Revelation is dealing with, this timeline. Notice there aren't any dates on it, but that's the timeline that God is working with, offering us salvation, hoping that you and I will come to repentance and that we will then be victorious over the final judgment with Jesus. So that's the timeline if you want a timeline, and this applies. So we're in the repentance phase of this timeline. And the reason that we are actually, Second Peter reminds us of that and says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to, what, come to repentance. That's God's hope for you and me today, that we will come to repentance. And so repentance is actually a good thing. It is about our transformation. It's about our change, our heart being transformed and changed so that we'll go back and get back to loving God with all heart and soul and strength and mind. So that's part of what Revelation is encouraging us to do today. So let's jump into chapter 13. In chapter 13, we see the first beast. And the first beast in this chapter represents, most likely for the first century, the Roman Empire and the emperor of the Roman Empire. So this is the first beast, that that the dragon, Satan, is using beast one to conquer the earth and is unleashed on the earth. And that's what's happening in chapter 13. And the reason that we know this is an allusion to the nation of Rome, is because of the imagery, the Old Testament imagery that John uses from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 mentions a leopard, a bear, and a lion as other national powers that were at work in the world. Again, John is using this symbolic Old Testament prophetic language to represent Rome. And notice that John combines all three animals together in this beast, if if you're looking in chapter 13. So again, this beast one is the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was the greatest military power of that day. They were conquering. They were the superpower of their day. And it's interesting because this question is raised about the first beast in chapter 13. It says, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it, right? Who could do this? Who could wage war against the nation of Rome? It is a superpower. So there's no one who can stand against it. That's what John is alluding to this, the military might of the Roman Empire as well. Now for Christians, John goes on and then also gives a message to the church in this vision. And the message to the church is not one that maybe we want to hear today or they would have wanted to hear in the first century, but this was the message. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance 
and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. I think that's a message for us today too, right? Patient endurance and faithfulness. You know, we keep hearing messages. We, we keep wanting to hear the message that, the, that, that COVID-19 is over. There's a cure. There's a, there's a um, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about, a vaccine. Thank you. A vaccine. You know, we want it to be done. We want it to be over. And it's not. We keep, we keep waiting. And it, we're called to patient endurance in this time and faithfulness to God in this time. They, in the first century, we're also getting that same message, like martyrdom is not going away. People are still going to be killed because of their Christian faith. People are going to still be put into prison because of their Christian faith under the Roman uh, emperor. And so this idea is coming out in John chapter 13, and that, that Satan, evil, is using this empire to do this in this spiritual battle. As uh, Pastor Jennifer reminded us last week, there's this spiritual realm that we learn about in the Bible that there are spiritual forces at work that we can't always see. And that's happening here as well. And so this is the Roman Empire. The other thing that happens in chapter 13 is we also get to another, see another beast. And the second beast is the role of the second beast is to promote the empire or to promote the first beast. And this could be an allusion to the economic engine of the Roman Empire or the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor that we've learned about. Those are the things that could have been the second beast represents. So the second beast's role is to promote and point people to the first beast, and the role of both beasts is to get people to worship the dragon and the beast as well. And so this whole image is happening in chapter 13 of the beast. So we're in beast mode today, obviously. So as we're thinking about this, so you think about how this is happening, right? Now, this is a speculation uh, about interpretation, so just want to put that out. This is not the only interpretation of this. Uh, but one of the things that was new in the first century was the use of coins. Think about currency. So this started to emerge just before the birth of Christ, and Roman, the Roman Empire was making coins, creating coins, and they would put the image of the emperor on their coins. They would mark their coins with the image of the emperor. And what Rome was trying to do was also create an economy based on the use of coins. So shifting from an economy that was based on bartering, uh, the people often bartered with one another and traded goods, to a coin-based currency and system. And in chapter 13, we see that no one can trade in the marketplace without the mark of the beast, right? Could be that it was the mark of the emperor. And interestingly enough, the mark of the beast is given a numerical value. You and I probably, you probably know this, it's called the mark of the beast is 666, which is interesting because in this whole book of Revelation, we're dealing with sevens, seven, 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 three scenes of seven, 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 seven. Seven represents holiness, completeness. What does 666 represent? Just off of perfection, right? Just off of holiness. See, the thing is that evil often doesn't come to us like what we see in the horror movies. Evil doesn't always come with horns and fangs and, and, and anger. Sometimes evil comes, as Paul says, as an angel of light. That it's close to being good, it's close to being holy, but it's just off a little bit to trick us, to deceive us, to get us to go in a different direction. So 666 is a number 
that's just off 777, right? And it's interesting because 666 is assigned a numerical value because in Hebrew scripture, there's a practice called gematria that where they take a number and assign the numerical value to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, Hebrew is read from right to left, not like English, we read left to right. So Hebrew is read in the opposite direction. They also don't use vowels in the numerical system. But if you assign a numerical value to each letter in the Hebrew alphabet and then put in the consonants for Nero Caesar, this is what you come up with. You come up with these Hebrew letters and these values added together represent 666. So obviously John is using this as a code to say Nero Caesar or the possibly the image of Nero on the coin is part of the issue that they're dealing with in the economy. And this economy, this beast number two, this mark of the beast supports the beast number one, right? And that these beasts are at work unleashed in the world and working. That these spiritual forces are using national powers, empires, rulers, authorities to work in the world and work evil in the world. So that's part of what's happening in the symbolism there. Now the number 666, actually, I cannot pronounce the word for this, but there's actually a fear. People who have fear of the number 666, there's a phobia, and it's a big long word. I'm not even going to try it to pronounce. But you know this, right? And there's all kinds of ways that, here's the thing about this use of numbers, assigning numbers to language, is that I could do that with English, I could do it, we can do it with Greek, we can do it with all these different uh, systems, and depending on which number, which n- system you use, you can get a lot of different names and words to line up to be 666. If you just put in the right language and you put in the right numbers, you can usually come up with something. For example, in English, you could come up with 666 for Adolf Hitler, but you can't do it in Hebrew. So if you just go with the English version of this, then yeah, you're, you're good. If you're going with the Hebrew version, it doesn't line up. Again, we're using the Hebrew version, uh, John's using the Hebrew version. We also can see 666 in numbers uh, all over. People have attributed it to John F. Kennedy. Uh, they've attributed it to Ronald Reagan. If you actually look at Ronald uh, Reagan's name, Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters, six letters, six letters. He also had a house address at one point of 666. So people say, well, that's, you know, that's the mark of the beast. Or you could say the mark of the beast is, is Bill Clinton. You can make Bill Clinton become uh, that. So the point is, is not that any of those people are the mark of the beast. The point is, is that you can find, if you run the numbers enough and you figure out the patterns and you choose the right language, you could probably come up with 666 for just about anybody, maybe even somebody in your own family. I just try it. You could probably do it. But anyway, the point is that you can do this, right? But here in the text, we have to stay away from this kind of uh, trying to see the 666 everywhere in us and know that for this text in that day, it was represented of Nero and the emperor. So that's what's important for us as we interpret and unpack this text. So Notice that we now shift into chapter 14, which we heard read. Camille did a beautiful job reading uh, today. And what we learn is this idea that there's this 144,000 that comes with the lamb and joins the lamb. And again, this is symbolic language. This is not literal. And the 144,000 
represent basically kind of this messianic army of the lamb. Remember that the lamb is the slain lamb, the one who laid down his life for others. So this power struggle between where Rome is trying to conquer and take over, the lamb's way of wielding power is to lay down and give away and serve and sacrifice. So it's a totally different way of doing things in the world. And so these martyrs or these uh, messianic army of 144,000 that come with the lamb, notice that there's some symbolic language here that they, they haven't adulterated themselves with Rome, basically. They've kept themselves pure and holy, and they've, not, uh, got, they've been celibate, so to speak. And this is really meaning that they've been celibate in their practice of worship, worshiping God, of loving God with all their heart, their soul, their strength, and their mind, not loving the Roman Empire and following the imperial cult and the economy of Rome. That's what John's pointing out here, that there's this, this contrast between these two armies, the army of God, the messianic warriors, and the army of Rome, the military power of Rome. That's part of what's emerging here. And then chapter 13 then says, follows that up, with three announcements. And really, they're announcements of coming judgment, of judgment about to fall. And it sends three angels to announce three messages. And these messages are, the first angel proclaims the eternal gospel to the nations and says the hour of judgment has come. And so the gospel is going out to people of all nations to call them, again, to repentance, to come back to loving God and making God uh, the primary Uh, important priority in their lives. And then the second angel proclaims that Babylon has fallen. Babylon is code word for Rome, and that Rome is going to fall, and judgment is going to come for Rome. And will you repent, Rome and people? And then third angel proclaims judgment for the worshipers of the beast that have the mark of the beast, where? On their hand and on their forehead. Exactly the same places that the Jewish, the Hebrew people were to mark themselves with God's word and on their hand and on their forehead, that they were to put that scripture in their hearts. And so really it's about marking of the mark of the, you, you know, are, are we following the mark of the beast or are we following the love, the mark of God in Deuteronomy 6? And in a way, the mark of the beast is what's called the anti-Shema, or because Deuteronomy 6 is called the Shema. And so the mark of the beast is the anti-Shema. It is the marking that I'm not loving God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength. And so I, because I'm worshiping and sacrificing and honoring other entities in the world, like the Roman Empire, like the imperial cult, like the economy of Rome. So these things are happening. So that's the contrast that's being brought forth for us in 13 and 14. So what do we make sense of that? What, so you, you and I may be sitting here going, so what? What does that mean for us today? Well, a lot of people have tried to interpret this, right? Interpret is this uh, the sign of the times, right? You could have put Russia into this category, right? Russia uh, and the Russian economy. And then maybe today it's some people are interpreting as China and China's economy and, and their superpower and so forth. And you could do this with lots of things. In fact, you could probably even do this with the church itself back in the time of the Crusades where they became this military conquering power and they were asking for funding and uh, worship and, uh, and the economy to support the Crusades and taking back territory that they 
believed belonged to them. And there were great atrocities during the Crusades. And so in a sense, you could say that at one point in history, the church was representative of beast one and beast two. You could say China was represented. You could say uh, Russia was right. Again, you could apply this across the board to many places. You could even apply that to our nation, the United States. I mean, if you and I ask the question, what's the greatest superpower in the world? What's the greatest military in the world today? Like in the first century, the answer is Rome. But what's the answer today? Many of us would say the United States is the greatest military power in the world today. And it's true. And it's true because we spend more money as a, on our military than any other country. In fact, in, if you combine the top 10 countries, other countries, next top 10 countries, you combine all their military spending together, it's still less than what we spend. Here's a graph to kind of give you an idea. We spent a $732 billion. This is a older, is a few years ago. We spent in military spending. Notice that that's more than China, India, Russia, Saudi Arabia, France, Germany, United Kingdom, Japan, South Korea, and Brazil combined. <laughs> so that's a lot of countries. What allows us to do this military spending, which happens to be 54% of all our spending as a government, as a, as a, as a nation, right? 54% is military. So think about this. So what allows us to do that? Well, it's because we have a very strong economy. So our economy actually allows our superpower as a military. And the question I think we as leaders and as a nation have to ask ourselves is, are we using that power wisely and justly in the world? And again, we're not going to get into geopolitics today. That's a whole other message. The point here today is that we also live in a superpower. We live in a nation very similar to the position of Rome in the first century. And are we worshiping that entity, that military power, or are we loving God? That's a great question. Also for us individually, we also have to think about our own spending. Like, what's the impact of my spending, the, the economy? How do I use my economy? How do I use my resources? Is it marked by love of God and love of others, or is it marked by something else? Am I going after that brand name, that style? You know, to, uh, am I going after a certain lifestyle that's marked by labels and brands, right? Again, those are marks. And if we're going after that branding to give ourselves and give other people the impression of a certain lifestyle, aren't we marking ourselves and saying that we love that lifestyle? And where does God fit into that, right? How does God, uh, our love of God, and then what's the impact those styles, those brands are having in the world? Today, 170 million children are in slave labor. They're being enslaved. Uh, for example, Disney ha- uses, chi- uh, uses labor in China to put together its stuffed animals to sell to us when we go to a to Disney World or Disneyland or when we go to their shops and we order online, whatever we're doing, when we buy those toys, some of those are created in China. And some of the people making those stuffed animals are children. Some children in China work 72 hours a week out of six days a week, 72 hours, and they're enslaved to that because of a family debt or a family has basically sold them to that company to work for that company for financial reasons. Again, is our spending, our economy, supporting what we want to see God doing in the world? We could also apply this to the environment. 
Uh, we could apply this to other aspects and how we're uh, doing business in the world and how we're relating to other nations as well. There are all kinds of ways for us to think about this and really raise questions about how we're spending our money and what we're spending our money on to get that label or to get that mark on our shirt. You know, I've got a mark on my shirt today. So we have to think about those things as well. You know, I was also sad to learn that chocolate companies are all, I love chocolate, you probably love chocolate, some of you, and that some of our big chocolate companies are also engaged in the use of child labor, as well as our clothing. Uh, Some of our big brand name clothing is using child slave labor to put together shirts and jeans and other uh, things that we buy. So it really raises the question is, what is God, how does God want us to use our resources, our time, our energy? And is it invested and sacrificed? And are we willing to be patient, endurance, and faithful in sacrificing for the things of God and not just for things of the world, right? To seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and not our own kingdom and our own righteousness. Let's pray together.